Welcome to Higher ID, the podcast where we talk about all things instructional design in higher ed. We're your hosts, Christy J. Woods and Dr. Jess Seitler, and we are excited to bring you our next episode. This week, we have a special guest, Dr. Don DePerry, who is the Learning Passport Global Content Management Specialist at UNICEF. Today, we'll be talking with Don about graphic design for instructional designers, humanitarian instructional design and management, and more. Don, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Don, we always love to start off hearing people's stories and you have such a rich history with instructional design, graphic design, content creation. You've done, it seems like you've done it all. <laughs> um, so can you start us off telling us a little bit about your background? And then um, we'd love to hear also about your current role with UNICEF as the Learning Passport Global Content Management Specialist. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I'll give you the condensed version because I've been in the workforce a long time so when people ask me like to tell me their story I'm like do you have a minute pull up a chair (laughs) I've been working a long time (laughs) absolutely um no but I um I got my start um I guess in graphic design originally um I have my bachelor's in visual communication so I worked in publishing and advertising um, I had, I worked for a couple of ad agencies. I started my own business in advertising. I went and got an MFA in advertising. Um, and I ended up teaching that, uh, topic. So that opens me up to teaching things like, uh, software, um, interpersonal communications, um, theory, a lot, cause I did, uh, art direction. So that kind of thing. And then, um, I also, taught educational technology to future teachers and that really got me interested in like pedagogy and teaching overall in like a face-to-face format and then I started teaching online I think in 2012. So um, I taught for 10 years face-to-face hybrid and online Um, and from having like a UX or a graphic design type of background, I noticed that when I would be teaching online, the user experience, the navigation, like the way that the user navigated through the online course just didn't, um, I wasn't really like happy with it. I felt like there was room for improvement. There was room, I, I missed that spark of like learning that was in the face-to-face class. And I wanted to know like, how can I make it better in online? Like, what can I do as an instructor? How could I develop um, activities and learning um, to make it more interesting so I have like more engaged learners? So that's what like kind of got me interested in getting my doctorate, which is in like higher education, teaching and learning. And it's like parts, um, like it's a management degree, but it's like focused on instructional design um, and like organizational change, that kind of things so I finished that in 2020 March 2020 which was right when the pandemic happened so um like ever I I started doing instructional design before that um both as an instructional um as a teacher but also taking some side projects while I was um getting my doctorate but then I got really full force into instructional design when I finished my doctorate because it just became so um in demand my skill set so I worked um in my business, taking on different clients. And I also got a job at um, Harvard, working with faculty 
um, worked with doctoral students and faculty in the Adolescent Ethnic Racial Identity Lab and the Teaching and Learning Lab at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, there I worked very heavily into like digital accessibility and inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and then when that job, that was a remote job and when that job had to be um, on site, um, what that was like their policy at the time, it changed. So I started looking for a new role Mm -hmm. And where I live right now is not a lot of universities out here. I kind of like worked at all the ones that were near me and um, I, yeah. there was no really like lots of positions open um, at the time. So I kind of live um, in like a sleepy beach town that's not very populated. So there's not a lot of universities out here. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I looked into the UN and, and the humanitarian sector. Um, I was attracted to that because it was um, like highly intellectual. I knew it was going to be creative and challenging. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I, I luckily got picked. Like I didn't know anyone there. Um, it was kind of, I, I guess cool. I got lucky. And that's where I've been in since, I guess a year and a half now. Wow, that's that is you are right that is so much <laughs> so much that I'm like oh I have like a billion more questions I um did some side work with students on the United Nations sustainability goals and in some some design stuff related to that so I'm just really interested in more that you're doing so I'm gonna have to ask you a little bit more specific um question here so you've worked in higher ed You've worked in corporate and humanitarian and nonprofit sectors. That's so many sectors. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> and on top of that, um, you have your own graphic graphic and instructional design agency. Yes. Yeah. And so can you talk to us a little bit about kind of the journey in those sectors and something that we're super interested in because we do focus on instructional design is how is learning design different in the nonprofit sector mm -hmm. as opposed to like corporate or higher ed? And um, I'll leave it there for the moment and, and let you let you I share all the questions. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I can't say I'm I'm an expert in each of those sectors. It's almost like I don't want to call myself a generalist, but because I've been in so many different things, I haven't been in like one specific thing for a super long time, except for higher ed is where I spent like most of my life, which is 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and when I look back at like how many years I've been working. Um, but higher ed, I think is a lot of like, I did a lot of like faculty development and like working yep. and you, you both work in higher ed. So, you know, right. this, you probably know that sector just as well. Um, and I, I really liked working with adults and I still do. And I still yeah. like my role right now I, is actually not child facing. I'm not designing, um, content for kids. Right. I'm working with, um, like adults and like helping them, um, evaluate content and I'm, help, I'm creating content for teachers, mm -hmm. um, which I really enjoyed, like Andrew Boji and all the mm -hmm. principles of that. Um, like right. my, when I was younger, my dad used to be like, you should be a teacher in K through 12. Like you'd be so natural at it. And I was like, I just mm -hmm. want, I, I guess I think he would have been right, but I wanted to be like where somebody like where people wanted to be like that were paying to be in, yeah. in that seat and like I, I assumed that that would make them more engaging um more mm -hmm. engaged or more interested in the topic so um yeah. I don't know if that's always true I think it, it's yeah. always up to you as an instructor to improve that but um differences I've heard that I know like in corporate um there's a lot more like 
compliance type of trainings. Mm -hmm. I haven't done a lot of that or like storyline. That's not my area of Mm -hmm. expertise, although that's more in corporate. I've worked a lot with learning management systems, probably like a dozen different ones. So Blackboard, Canvas, Tabuti, D2L, um, Learn Dash, WordPress. Um, I could probably go on and on. So (laughs) I think that that is like one of the things that stays throughout all of the types of instructional design. You're always kind of like working with some kind of learning management tool. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, I use like a variety of tools, no matter which sector I'm in. Like um, I like to do a little bit of, I, I enjoy the management process and I enjoy like the people process of managing others and managing projects. But I, I know for myself, I have to be hands-on to a little bit. Like I actually yeah. do enjoy some of the development coming from a graphic design background. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do it all the time. It doesn't need to be the majority of my job, but it makes me feel fulfilled when like I can play with software a little bit because it just keeps me sharp. I like learning yeah. new tools. I like being on top of the trends. I don't want to yeah. get rusty, you know? Yeah, I think that's great, uh, especially... Yeah as you're in more of like management and leadership, I think that's like what makes a really great leader is like being able to just do both. Um, you're like leading the charge, but also coming into the weeds and doing the stuff with the people at the same time. Yeah, because you like you have more empathy for the people who are doing the work if you've been through that yourself, right? And teachers yeah. too, like if you've been an educator, it's easier for you to design experiences that they need to use because you think of it from a user experience and learn like UX and learning design are right. so similar. Right. Yeah. I was gonna I was gonna comment on that. I think very similar to that is you know, being a faculty member, uh teaching online courses and then being a designer that designs yeah. online courses mm-hmm. and then intersectionally um getting for me getting my second master's in education and instructional design but first time in online mm. so as an online student yes. I feel all those like little intersections have really um, honed my skills I would say and made me more empathetic and kind of detail oriented mm-hmm. to like oh we are gonna burn the faculty member out if we do mm-hmm. this or oh yeah. wow this is like a really heavy content load for one module, you know, for students or, Ooh, why do we have five technologies in here? We don't need that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I was an online student too, and I totally get it. And I was very frustrated with sometimes the way things were designed. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, like all the discussion boards, I'm like, can I express myself differently than just this text? (laughs) Like (laughs) give me an opportunity to like speak or do a presentation or something like more interactive you know like so you you think about the learner and learner variability and how you want to think about students and and give them some choices I love UDL for that reason I I was just gonna say too yes we love UDL we were just um I'm designing a UDL course right now and I was really I was really lucky I I will give props to my master's program at uh University of Wisconsin Stout I, they were all UDL, like, like a a lot of the assignments, excluding my action research, a lot of the assignments and my courses were, I I could present them however I wanted, but they created a list of examples of of some ways that I could present content. And I will say, I loved it because sometimes I was like, oh, I don't feel like writing, but I'll totally like, yeah, sometimes something will hit your creative juices and you'll be like, yeah. 
I love that. Let's, let's try it just for fun. And it just kind of added that tiny bit of extra motivation in, in getting the project or whatever it was done. Um, I was going to ask one question, um, kind of secondary to what we were just talking about. Um, what was your transition from higher ed to nonprofit um, learning design work like? Um, like my my transition from higher ed to humanitarian work, mm -hmm. um, it definitely yeah. has some similarities and differences. The similarities are that you're working with some of the most brilliant people in the world. Like that's one of the things I really loved about working in higher ed is just like the faculty are just amazingly intelligent and like super curious about learning and like really um interested in like improving their practice and I um working in the humanitarian um organization I meet um so many really smart like um incredibly talented driven people and um my favorite part is that I've, it's global so it's also I get to like meet people from all different cultures around the world and that's my favorite part I didn't get to yeah. do that quite as much in higher ed um maybe like if I was teaching or something I would but in this case I'm really opening my eyes up to just like the very many different types of contexts um, that we serve um, and it's incredibly rewarding and super impactful so that's mm -hmm. the difference with higher ed I felt like you could publish an article or like do something in a journal but like how many people are going to read that mm -hmm. but then like sometimes I feel like that's work I'm doing is impact is more impactful and more people are like experiencing it that I, I like that um, I think that that um, is really rewarding um, the one thing I miss though I do feel like you have more respect in higher ed like sometimes I'll mm -hmm. be in a conversation with a group of people they'll be like we should get some people who are in higher ed to weigh in on this and I'm like I was there for like 10 years like <laughs> I feel like I don't have as much value anymore that I'm not like in mm -hmm. associated with an institution of higher ed anymore um, so I kind of miss that and then my research agenda like I don't have time to research on the side I thought I did I started to work on a project I'm like no I can't I just have three kids a full-time yeah. job I have a side hustle like I need to have free time too so <laughs> yes. it's like been impossible so yeah. I really miss I really miss that part about higher ed that one day I'm hoping to like dabble back into that but mm, so those are some yeah. differences and, and some similarities yeah I love that you brought up um a little bit about like getting to meet people from all over the world and working for a global institution um, and I know that you've traveled recently for work. I think you traveled to Poland maybe a few months back. And then before we started recording, you talked a little bit about how you just traveled to Italy too. So I'm curious, like, how does that shape your experience as a learning designer? Does it impact it in a different way, getting to travel for work in that way? And what's your experience been? Yes, absolutely. That's one of my favorite things about my job is the ability to travel to like meet and understand your learner. Um, because yeah. it's hard when you're like, if I'm in New York, and I'm working on a project for Ukrainian refugees, I can only imagine what they're going through. I can mm -hmm. research and I can do focus groups and qualitative interviews from afar. And I can analyze things but like going face to face and like being on the ground and seeing children up close and talking to teachers face to face is incredibly yeah. um motivating and insightful and 
um, it just, it, it blows your mind. Like, I mean, uh, these experiences have just like completely changed me and each time. Like I went to um, Ghana, um, was my first time for traveling. Mm-hmm. I had wow. never been to Africa. I had been to the Middle East, um, but I had never been to Africa. So like just that experience just was such a culturally rich environment and I learned so much and it was just so wonderful every time I travel I just I come back like Mm. a different person like a better person um, with more empathy more understanding Um, and I also think it makes me a better mother too like I come back and I think about like the ways I want to shape my kids and like how Mm. I want them to grow up to be global-minded citizens and not to be little spoiled brats (laughs) and to understand that they really have like they're so privileged and Mm -hmm. I'm like I always teach them like to give back and to give back and they have ridiculous amounts of community service hours like (laughs) because they're always like helping the community Um, but like I've raised them to be that way you know I just Mm -hmm. think it's really important like that's what I want to leave on the world like I want to just be as impactful as possible and give back as much as possible before I die it's like insatiable goal (laughs) no I love it I think it's great and and I I love to like framing it in the context of like understanding who your learners are and how this will impact that because even the work that I do like we're just now starting to create create projects where we're building a bridge between student affairs and academic affairs. So taking mm. student data and understanding who our students are and then designing from it. And we haven't been doing that, which I know sounds like totally silly and like, duh, we should have absolutely been doing that from the start. And of course we're using best practices, but we don't truly know who we're serving. We don't get to like meet with our students. We don't get the feedback from our students. You know, it's just a different experience. So it's really cool that you're able to do that. Yeah, definitely. What a, what a, yeah, what a great experience, not just the traveling, but just um, really growing in worldview. Cause you know, I, I've traveled to quite a bit too, but I always think I, there's so much more I could do, um, mm-hmm. and learn, um, through that experience and designing, designing learning experiences through your travel and your work. That's, that's just really great. Yeah. yeah. And especially cause you work with like, so like such marginalized populations, like, like if you can reach like someone that is like a a disabled child in like a rural environment without connectivity like and have like socioeconomic issues or access to Mm -hmm. food and water like if you can reach them like you could reach anyone so like I'm always just like trying to challenge myself of like you can't just like flash shiny stuff that maybe you give someone in New York City, like schools or whatever, like mm-hmm. you have to think of how to reach them and how it's going to be localized and how they're going to, it's going to resonate with them. Um, yeah. I think that's super, super important. And I've learned a lot about that um, from these experiences that I hadn't mm-hmm. thought of before, like what that, what it's really like to be that learner. Yeah. Wow. That is really great. Um, so Going on to the next question, uh, you recently wrote an open source um, book called Graphic Design for Course Creators with a forward written by Tim Slade. Congratulations. And can you tell us a little bit about the conception of your book and what made you to decide to write the book and make it open source? Sure. Um, I, I've always wanted to write 
a book in general is kind of like a bucket list, not mm-hmm. to like make money, but just because something I wanted to do in life. And the reason I picked this topic is because when I broke into instructional design, I had the expertise of graphic design. So I was always helping other instructional designers with graphic design tips. Right. So it was like, I would like people would send me things and I would like help them with their portfolio or give them some like tips. Um, and I found myself like doing this over and over again in the same ways. So I'm like, mm-hmm. let me just produce like some of the basic tips. Um, I wanted it to be kind of like a checklist or a framework that was easy for people to follow. And I, I like CCVY because you can take part of it and you can adapt it and you can change it. And I recognize that technology changes so fast. So like what I write, what I wrote like last year is like probably some of it is already needs to be adapted and that you can easily do that or anybody can pick it up. You could translate it. And I've been super inspired by the open educational resource community because once I started working in um, at UNICEF, I started getting very I've always been interested in open educational resources and creative commons because mm-hmm. I was a designer from an artist standpoint, right. but now working um, in humanitarian sector, I realized the depth of um, disparities in education and like children didn't have access to high quality books. They didn't have access to high quality materials. Um, and so really been passionate about like making sure that we're spreading the knowledge and we're um Mm. you know to adults to children so that everybody can have um access to education i feel like it's a fundamental human right so um i did that like and again not to i didn't want to i don't care about making money it was more like i wanted to give back to the world so Mm -hmm. that was why i made it open education um made it ccby Yeah, that's so cool. It's such a thread throughout your story of like just wanting to give back and wanting to be like a really well-rounded global citizen that like really takes care of others. (laughs) And you did it with a book, you know, like that's, I think that's like really um, threaded deep within your story so far. I I actually shared your book with um, a lot of the instructional designer colleagues that I work with and uh, of course yeah but like one thing I noticed I'm also um, newer to UX but have always thought about it a bit because I get really frustrated when there's poor navigation or I have to make too many clicks or I can't find things or things don't feel consistent Um, but as an when I became an instructional designer I really started to dawn on me that, um, no pun intended, <laughs> really started to like, wake <laughs> me up. <laughs> Sorry. I had to, I was like, oh, <laughs> um, it really started to wake me up in terms of like that a lot of instructional designers are, have really a great depth of uh, pedagogy and andragogy knowledge. Um, but we don't often, we're not lucky enough to have some of that background in um, graphic design. And mm-hmm. even though we're often thinking about best practices, graphic design and UX design, they overlap. There's that really yeah. amazing intersection with best practices. And so I thought your um, book was a really great resource. And um not to be too meta, but it was really usable. And yeah, that's something that's something I applaud you for because <laughs> usability is so so important. You know, theory is great, but usability is so amazing. Um and thinking about that a little bit, Thank I've been you. wanting of course. 
um, thinking about that a little bit, I've been wanting to write a book. It's always been my goal too. So I have to pick <laughs> your brain uh, and, and we'll say excluding my dissertation. I wanted to write a, a different book. Um, yes. How, like, what was that process like and how did you commit yourself to that, that writing process? Sure. Um, my, I did do like a, a book, like coaching program, um, to just have an accountability group of other authors that were going through the same thing. And there was like an asynchronous online course that we followed to just kind of get like the gist of like how to create your outline and like, um, promoting it and which I'm not going to promote it and follow that uh, module very well, but um, just kind of like, you know, the basics of, um, of writing a book. So that was helpful. And then we also like teamed up with, I had like a buddy. So mm -hmm. um, her name is Heather, you um, cow up and she's on um, LinkedIn. Um, she's like an agile and UDL specialist. And her and I um, did writing sprints together. So like speaking of agile, we are like, we did like yeah. the sprints. So we woke up at six in the morning and we called it like the pajama brigade. And we That's would amazing. like, put our like camera on and we would both just write for like a half hour or an hour every single day like without a stop for about like six weeks so, wow. um, and that's how I got my first drafts yeah I, I'm like very much you know atomic habits like I'm very yes. much about like I repeat the same things like yes. I have to do them in like specific orders and like I don't know my, I have like yeah. a very strict morning routine and like every time I want to learn a new skill I, I like incorporate like this like habit stacking yeah. so um we did that and that was like really helpful because you had accountability habit just became discipline just like exercise like I exercise six days a week it's not something that I wake up and go should I exercise a day it's like I'm an exerciser so I do like I'm a runner so I run yeah. like it just becomes part of my identity I guess yeah. when I take on a new thing Jess um, is also a runner you just you just get like <laughs> Five of my favorite <laughs> things running. I could see the heart eyes just like out of the screen. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, you're my best friend now. <laughs> oh, I wish we could run together. I've always said you were running friends. Oh, but I find excuses to travel and I use running, <laughs> running and conferences are my top two excuses to travel. I went to Berlin in September for a marathon, <laughs> but back to, oh point. my God, I want to be that person. I, I admire you. I want to do that. I need to have an excuse to travel for fun. Like, cause I'm tra like traveling for work and I keep thinking, I'm like, I need to see more places. This isn't enough. I should use like a marathon to like do it. Yeah. yeah it's it's an it's a great excuse or <laughs> or even a half marathon um yeah I, I can't fool my husband with a 5k so I have to make it like a longer distance to make it feel really valuable but yeah I've you, never done a whole marathon only yeah. a half I'm debating about starting the whole but like I have that self-limiting belief that I'm like, am I too old to run a marathon for the first time? No, you are no, not. Like, I know Go I'm not. I gotta it. just like get over this hump that I haven't done it yet. We'll I, see. Uh, I will say running my first marathon was the most amazing experience I ever had in my life. It was like one of those, it's a big confidence builder. I'm like, if I can run a marathon, I can do everything else. Yeah, <laughs> but, I can imagine. 
but um, also, man, atomic habits. Yes. Yeah, we and, love and, atomic and, habits. And, yes. And habit stacking. And then you're like, you totally hit the cohort, like a cohort a social learning system, thing. social mm-hmm. learning. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> hey, Christy, wink, wink, wink. You want to <laughs> write a book? I want to write a book. I don't want to run a marathon. Can I oh, okay. say yes yeah. to one and not the other? <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. A or B. <laughs> I'm going to send you a note with little check marks. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, that sounds like an amazing experience. And you included so many small elements that I, I believe really supported your success. So that is wonderful. Thank you for sharing. I took notes. <laughs> Good. I'm excited to see your book. Thanks. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit because, you know, we've, Justin and I have both looked at your book, read your book, shared your book, but um, for folks who haven't had a chance yet, do you have some like top two or three design choices or tips or tricks that are kind of like, if you don't do anything else, do these things um, when creating courses <sighs> online? Yeah. So I guess one of the things that I like is is really important to me is um, minimalism. So Mm -hmm. like thinking about like when you look at content, when you're presenting it, whether that's like on a slide or you're looking at a module or you're looking at text, like, like how can you condense it down, chunk it down, make it small enough and bite size enough that somebody's going to absorb it, Mm -hmm. preventing like cognitive load. So like thinking about like, okay, is there extra like clip art in here? Is there some photos in here that are not really helping? Like basically if it doesn't do the job, take it out. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like, I see, this is the biggest thing I think I see with instructional designers is like, they're adding like decorations and it looks like they're kind of like throwing it at the page, like just Mm -hmm. like placing it. And so if you're going to put images on, it should be like properly aligned they should look cohesive, like they all are like coming from the same place and they should aid in instruction. Um, Because like, if they don't, then um, they're just like adding clutter and they're making it more confusing for the learner and harder for them to get through because they're taking that part of their brain that they should be like reserving for learning and they're using it to like decipher what the heck are they looking at? Like, Mm -hmm. what is this? Where do I, where's the next button? Like, how do I get back to the home page? Like, and they can't even find the icon because there's like all the stuff everywhere, like stuff like that. I see that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Cause I think you, at least I'll say, I'll speak from my experience. You feel like you have to add some media to like try and make it. So it's not just text-based and I can see how that can easily go overboard. (laughs) Yeah. But like, sometimes just one image is super impactful if you think about like um Steve Jobs right he is one of the best public speakers ever and one of the best presenters he would stand on stage with just one like powerful image and maybe one question and like it was it was powerful and he kind of let himself do the talking so like so if you're going to have audio maybe you have captions on like that are coming across but like you're not putting all the text and throwing all the text on the page on top of the image like on top of the question so like try to like you you know again like focusing on cognitive load like all the theories having to do with that Mm -hmm. yeah I actually um I'm in the 
an Educause New Managers Institute, and they have um, different um, competencies for leaders, and one of them is communication, and they shared this um, TED Talk that's Death by PowerPoint. I don't know if you've seen it, um, but it was <laughs> essentially talking about um, PowerPoints and how we should be designing them for attention and cognitive load instead of like flashiness. And, um, and he like used, he like talked about how instead of trying to condense, um, 200 slides down to five slides, if you need 200 slides to help get the attention to where it needs to go in that slide deck, then that's fine. But you have to like really be careful about, are you just adding slides because it's information and you're trying to give them way too much information or is it that you're trying to yeah. um, guide their attention through it? So I really love that. Well, um, I'll be sure to put it in the show notes for anybody that wants to watch it, but I just thought like, wow, like I just, I don't know why I hadn't like thought about design and attention and cognitive load and like bridging those together, but that was um, a revelation for me for sure. I I think that that's a really great point. I when I think about design, often um, in terms of images, it's pretty common. We just add a header. Mm -hmm. um, but I was talking to some instructional designers, and I don't know if it's like a foreign language thing or just my personal preference. But I really um, I always try to find a header that really aligns. I have to use a different header for each module, but that really aligns image wise with the content. So that it, it aids in, aids in memory. So, um, so when I do that, like thinking about we're doing neuroscience and I found a neuroscience that specifically had to do with gaming. And then, so when students, they don't look, just look at module one, there's a name as well as a visual image. And I was that student who I was like, oh, remember that image of this one thing that related to X. And then it kind of led me down that waterfall of knowledge mm -hmm. of, of memory. Yeah. Well, it's a great way to like connect the pieces, right? You remember the image and then you remember the content. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense, Jess. We just have um, two more questions for you. That's Dawn. fine. Um, uh, your, I was struck when I was reading your book about how much, um, digital accessibility was part of the theme of the book and um and I uh, this is kind of my theme today is like I don't know that I connected graphic design with digital accessibility but it makes so much sense um that there's overlap between not only instructional design and graphic design but also accessibility so I'm curious too how um what are some of the key practices in accessibility that you would focus on as well? Again, if there's a couple of things that you do, what are those things that you should absolutely do every time? Sure. And the one of the reasons I chose this topic was, um, like you said, it is like half digital accessibility and half graphic design. It's not mostly graphic design. I should, probably should have made the title up here like half and half. But <laughs> That's okay. um, and in fact, digital accessibility comes first in the book. Yeah, and the reason why is because a lot of people, their process when they design a course is to do accessibility checks at the end. Right. So that is very uh, detrimental because then you're like doing band-aid approaches, you're causing more work, you often have to redo the development process. So this accessibility should be thought of at the front always, just like, you know, with UDL, like think about it, um, how to meet your learner's needs before you even begin. 
Um, and the other thing I think people struggled with is like you said, like there's the, um, they need the, the help with graphic design, but then they struggle with like, what choices can I make that are also digitally accessible because they do go mm -hmm. hand in hand. Like, so for example, color, um, one of the other things I see when um, instructional designers create content is like color um, doesn't like it doesn't look nice together. I don't know how yeah. else it's like concordant, sort of um, conflicting, I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and then sometimes it's not um, the good contrast ratio. And so it's right. like not going to be digitally accessible. Like, for example, um, like I'm on the board of education now at my, my public school and like I can't help but critique every graphic design thing I see. <laughs> like it's just like because I've been a designer for so long. Yeah. And they're showing like uh, data and data online and um, the charts and stuff are like red is like oh, one gosh. one graph and then the other one is green and I like want so bad to like color blindness and be like call this person out and be like somebody who has color blindness can't tell the difference between these two graphs and I have to like resist, like you know like I'm gonna say something later and I cannot do it in front of everybody but like yeah. it's super important the choices you it make is. um mm -hmm. and same thing with fonts so if you pick a font that's all like cursive right it's say and then it's going to be hard for children to read that because they haven't learned to write in cursive never mind read in cursive so how are they going to read their first book in cursive yeah. so it's not accessible or like if you think of someone who has um dyslexia there's I talk about this in my book if you're going to pick a font you, there's certain fonts that have the um propensity to like mirror if you have dyslexia so if you have like a uh, sans serif, like, um, like Ariel or something like that, the D and the, the lowercase D and the lowercase B can, are actually exactly the same, but just flipped. So it mm. causes like more issues with children with disabilities where like serifs, for example, make it easier for you to lead your eye from like place to place and maybe better or same thing with like open dyslexia font or sure. uh, comic sans even, which a lot of graphic designs designers scoff at um and it's not always ideal but sometimes it's better for people with um dyslexia however that's not always the case and the thing with accessibility I think the future is going to be in customizability and that, that's mm. my hope I want to be able to have design learning experiences and design actually my next goal is to create a product but like design products that um, have customizability features so that wow. what works for one learner doesn't work for another. Like someone with dyslexia prefers a certain font sometimes where a different learner, that's, that makes it harder for them to read. Or mm -hmm. someone who has colorblindness prefers or needs high contrast because someone with photoepileptic seizures can't handle that super high contrast colors because they can have like seizures and headaches so um and you know so there's so much to talk about with accessibility but like I think the main point is like I tried to make it um easy to use like a user guide and just like progress yeah. over perfection if you can just change something um small or it's just if you mm -hmm. learn one thing at a time I think you're making progress yeah, I guess. And, and to do it in the beginning. I think that that's the main idea before you pick any font, before you pick any colors, think about accessibility first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we on our team accessibility, actually, this is the best team I've been on in terms of accessibility. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think part of that is because 
we have a large team that um, some of our folks are trained specifically in accessibility and especially like in documents. So we can sort of um, delegate some of the content that comes into us to folks who are specialized in that, that can do it in their sleep. <laughs> and That's awesome. Yeah, awesome. it's really cool. So all of our PDFs, all of our PowerPoints, all of our Word documents, they're all accessible, which is beautiful. Um, and I, I do think it just takes a lot of forethought. Like you can't, I love what you said about like, it can't just be a checklist at the end because if it is, then you, you're already behind. You've already, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the scope creep is gone. You know, like you're never going to make the project in time yeah. because it takes, it takes time and, um, and it takes intentionality and, um, and I'm really grateful to be on a team that values that and does reviews at the end as well but it's throughout the whole design process it's really you're cool. so lucky like yeah. it's surprising my husband works in corporate in like big tech and like I, I don't even know if he has an accessibility team you know and I'm like yeah. you're so lucky I think higher ed I feel like is pretty innovative in that sense where they really mm -hmm. accommodate their learners needs yeah. Yeah. It's been really cool. It's so different too. Cause, um, there's some colleges I've worked at where it's like, it's pulling teeth to even get oh. them to use captions. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. so, you know, it just depends on the team, but, um, but my team does it really well and they've got a, a really great process, um, to be able to do a lot of that accessibility work as well. So it's awesome. Yeah. And there's more and more tools now that can automate it too. Yeah. Since I wrote that book, there's like for even just like picking colors and things like yeah. it's really nice to see to make it easy for people who are not technical yeah. to do it. Cause it can be overwhelming. Like I've had really nerdy, geeky conversations with other like yeah. software people and like, where they will, will, will be come to this realization of like, but how are we going to train like, you know, <laughs> the everyday person? Not? Yeah. So yeah. exactly. It's so nice to have these tools. Yeah. Well, that, that um, brings me to another question I had is how important, especially for folks in instructional design and learning design, how important is it for understanding coding languages like HTML, CSS, Java in creating accessible content and you know graphic design elements like what would you say is that something that folks should kind of get into if they haven't already I it's really hard to say like I think it depends on your role because when you say instructional designer that person's job and I'm, I'm sure you're seeing this all the people you interview have all different so, so many different roles yeah, like totally. for like for me um I'm helping countries with their digital learning strategy I'm helping them find content. I'm advising them on how to create content. I'm giving them software demonstrations. I'm working with um, providers to try to get content donated to them. I'm working with ways to like how to adapt it and localize it to meet the learner. Um, I'm help, help talking about best practices of hybrid and blended learning. I'm talking about how to use our learning management system. However, once in a while, I do need to do code because the software and the tools that I work on when I'm creating training for them, I need to use it like the mm -hmm. basic stuff or sometimes I have to troubleshoot and then it comes in right. handy. I don't think it's like the most important thing. And the funny thing is before I got into instructional design, I remember this one woman, I, I like she was like, you'd be a great instructional designer. This was many years ago. And I was like, but I'm not like a software programmer. Like both of my parents <laughs> were software engineers. So I've had mm -hmm. this like imposter syndrome 
boredom thing that I'm like, I could never do like the yeah. type of stuff they do. I'm not sure. that smart or that's how I thought. Yeah. But like, they're like, you don't really need to be a total programmer. But like, yeah, I think it's helpful to have a little bit of HTML knowledge, but I don't think it's necessary in most jobs. Right. Like I use it if I'm like creating an iframe and I need to embed an um, peripheral piece of software inside the LMS to like create a cohesive like experience without going to a new browser I do stuff like that or sometimes like I'm troubleshooting something and in like rise where a link isn't working and it like there's like some security issue with like the url or whatever and I have to revise it like once in a while I use code but like not really regularly, but there are instructional designers that are more like developers mm -hmm. um, and they would use it more. That's not really like the majority of my rules. So I would say I only use coding um, maybe like 5% of my job. It's not a big like thing. Yeah, that's super helpful. Yeah, I, I, I use it quite a bit more, but I do a lot of, um, a lot of design work in the LMS and there's yeah. a there's a lot of things break in the WYSIWYG and I can easily go back there and, and check it out and say, okay, well, this code is bad. And, yeah, and like I, City I can, Labs in Canvas. I remember working in there and that having to do yeah. more code. Yeah, I use City Labs. Yeah, and I have to do coding, basic troubleshooting coding. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why did this accordion open this accordion now? <laughs> What's yeah. happening over here? <laughs> you got yeah. the yeah, you got the double triple accordion because you have, <laughs> a, a, you have an extra pair. You know, you have a yeah. double, a nested list or something. You know. Yeah. I, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, so. We have so much information to share, not just your book, but it, it's been really great to learn about all the other elements of the work that you do and how you're helping others. I, I've really enjoyed that. I have one more ask of you. Um, in addition to your book, what resources would you recommend for IDs who want to grow in graphic design and digital accessibility competencies? Um, I can send you a list that I have, but um, without rambling on, um, it's the, on the back of my book, um, the press books, if you do include that in the show notes, there is a resources section and I um, have a, a bunch of different things in there to share, like um, yeah. some digital resources and also other books, like obviously the non-designers design book, which um that I have, I derived a lot of the main principles of graphic design from that. Mm -hmm. um, and I also put in some tools in the book as well of like the software tools to use for picking colors and things like that. Although I think a lot has changed since, and I'm sure there's lots of AI tools that you can use as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, definitely link your book and um, direct folks over there to the resources. And if you want to share anything with us, Don, we'll be happy to put it in the notes as well. Um, I think that would be great. We've yeah. got so much information that you shared with us and um, I'm just feeling really uh, inspired and and also just feel like my cup is full. I'm like, yeah. first thing I'll see with this, all this great <laughs> knowledge that you shared with us. So thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I always feel like, how am I going to talk about myself for this long? I'm not going to have enough things to say. And then you end up like going all the way to the end, you know, <laughs> yeah. chatting. Um, but I'm glad it was helpful. And it was so nice to see you all. Um, yeah, I hope I get to meet you in person one day. 
I know. I'm going to show up where you live and be like, hey, we're running a race together. I told my husband and I'm oh, here. Yes. Let's, I'm really serious. You and I are going to sign up for a race somewhere like in that another country be, together. That would, That'll oh, motivate me. Yes. Yeah. No, like that's what motivates me. Oh, uh, what? Paris? The Paris Marathon? I don't really want to run a marathon, but Paris. But okay, I do want maybe. to go to Paris. Can I walk <laughs> half of it? I might yes. I do it. You can do anything I can run you want. and then walk. I still don't know if I'm going to commit to a whole one yet. But maybe. Well, I can I, handle a half again. That's, that's if I can, I, if I can find cheap tickets, so I'll, I'll do a half. I'm, okay. I'm in for a half. And then Christy um, is going to wake up tomorrow with her inbox full of a checklist of how we're going to start writing our books. Book. Yes. <laughs> that's funny. That's so good. I'll be on. I'll be. I'll come to Paris as well, and I will just be on the sidelines giving you all the gummies and the drinks and the ibuprofen that you need. Yes. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks again, Don. And um, thank you all for listening and join us on our next episode of Higher ID. Bye. Adios. Bye.